Surprise, everyone! Episode 14 sees us turn back to the efforts of the British, with another trifecta of brief accounts. As mentioned in episode 13, while the US Congress hemmed and hawed about the potential benefits of government funding for Jeremiah Reynolds' expedition, the HMS Chanticleer, a bark-rigged 10-gun sloop of the same class as the HMS Beagle, was heading south under Captain Henry Foster. Digression time already. The Chanticleer was later slated to carry the second South America survey in 1831, but due to a poor condition, the task fell to the Beagle, which carried Charles Darwin as Captain Robert Fitzroy's companion, a position previously offered to Francis Beaufort, whose name I now associate with the practical scale for measuring wind strength he developed, and a light bomber used by the Allies in the Second World War. Coincidences continue to stack up. Foster gained experience in sailing ICCs under Captain Douglas Charles Clavering aboard the HMS Griper as part of the British Naval Scientific Expedition in 1823, and then under Captain William Edward Parry, searching for the Northwest Passage aboard HMS Heckler in 1824. Coe awarded the Copley Medal for Scientific Excellence by the Royal Society for his work in magnetic, gravitational and astronomical observations aboard the Heckler, and promoted to commander he returned to the Arctic for a third time for the British Naval North Polar Expedition in 1827, again under Parry. The expedition failed in its ambition to reach the North Pole, but managed a latitude of 82 degrees 45 minutes north. Foster was promoted to captain on returning to England, placed in charge of the Chanticleer, and dispatched on the British Naval Expedition to the South Atlantic. Brief to survey coasts and to make observations of ocean currents, he also made further gravitational observations using a cater invariable pendulum. Measurements at several points using this equipment were requested by the Royal Society as part of an attempt to accurately determine the dimensions of the Earth. After working closely with geologists for several years, I am almost but not quite convinced I wasted my life studying ecology. Geodetic surveying and gravity measurements could take up several episodes on their own. I won't let them, but I recommend reading up on gravitational variation because it's very interesting, and I can only envy Foster the time he spent making his observations using his pendulum in the governor's home on Fernando de Norona, a ridiculously beautiful group of islands about 200 miles off the coast of Brazil. Leaving Portsmouth in April 1828, the Chanticleer stopped at Cape Horn to make scientific observations before sailing further south. On the 7th of January, among plentiful whales and numerous icebergs, Foster put a party ashore at what he named Cape Possession, on land he named after his patron, the Duke of Clarence. Some rocks and animals from the shore of Clarence Land were collected, and a copper cylinder containing a document claiming the land in the name of King George IV, was left behind. Deception Island was also claimed, with two midshipmen planting a flag on the peak of the island's active volcano. Deception Island is so named because the mouth of its harbour, a flooded volcanic caldera, is difficult to spot from out at sea. The safe anchorage saw the island later used as a whaling station, but at the time of Foster's visit, 
with its seal population depleted and a brooding, smoking volcano close at hand. It held little to recommend it other than calm waters from which to establish a temporary station at which to make further observations with the pendulum. Interesting repercussions lie in the offing if anyone ever finds the brass cylinder Foster left at Cape Possession, as the exact location of Foster's landing has been the bone of contention between British and American geographers for some time. If the expedition chart is accurate, the landing occurred on the Antarctic Peninsula. If American doubts about the matter are valid, it occurred on Hoseason Island, in the Palmer Archipelago. If the British interpretation is correct, Foster made the first formal claim on the continent. Unfortunately, Foster drowned in the Chagres River in Panama in 1831, and so never published an account of the voyage. The next substantial exploratory voyage to Antarctica was that of Captain John Biscoe in 1831. A former naval officer, Biscoe was tasked with finding new sealing grounds, which is nothing new in that era, but I'm going to backtrack a bit and tell you something of his employers, because while the Enderbys didn't venture below the circle themselves, their company paid for a lot of Antarctic exploration, and their scientific curiosity endowed their captains with greater leeway to risk profits against discoveries than most merchant sailors enjoyed. Already mentioned in the series several times, I'm going to give a brief overview of the fortunes of the Enderbys through three generations. In 1773, Samuel Enderby II was running a profitable fleet of ships. His ships, registered in London and Boston, shuttled factory-made goods from Europe to the American colonies and returned across the Atlantic with barrels of whale oil. The wheels fell off Enderby's lucrative enterprise when tea on his ships in Boston was dumped into the harbour in a seminal moment of the American War of Independence. With whale oil embargoed as a New England export in 1775, Samuel Enderby turned his efforts to South Atlantic whaling. Ten years later, with South Atlantic sperm and right whales driven to near extinction, Enderby petitioned the government to allow his vessels to work the South Pacific, breaking the East India Company's historical monopoly on the region. Permission came in 1788. An Enderby and Sons ship, the Amelia, captained by James Shields, rounded the horn and began whaling the newly opened grounds. In 1790, the first cargo of whale oil rounded the horn and the Pacific whaling rush was on like a train. The company's first voyage of exploration was a huge success. In 1791, the company operated a fleet of 68 vessels and business was good, with convicts heading to New South Wales on Enderby whalers as part of the third fleet, and whale oil coming back. Samuel Enderby died in 1797, and the company passed on to his sons, Charles, Samuel III, and George. Their father's interest in exploration as a means to find new grounds for whaling carried forward as a plank in the Enderby brothers' business strategy, but their willingness to give their captains license to explore was as much driven by patriotism as by commercial interest. Their will to see England at the forefront of discovery did much to enhance knowledge of Antarctic waters, 
but eventually cost the company dearly, as they backed a greater percentage of unprofitable voyages than their competitors. But enough spectacular successes came of their willingness to risk an empty cargo hold that the company flourished through the early 19th century. In 1819, the Enderby whaler Siren visited waters off Japan and kicked off another whale rush. Evidence going back several centuries indicates that the Japanese did catch whales, but the nation only began to engage in the activity at a commercial scale in the 1890s, when European and American boats, when European and American boats were already well into the business of depleting the Western Pacifics of its whale stocks. Samuel Enderby Jr. died in 1829. His brothers having no children, the company passed on to three of Samuel's five sons, Charles, Henry and George, Samuel IV and William being cut out of their share for reasons my books don't go into. Charles inherited his father's interest in the areas their ships worked and became a founding member of the Royal Geographic Society in 1830. Much impressed by Waddell's achievements, Charles sent John Biscoe south with two whale ships to follow up a report of land between 0 and 20 degrees east in the high latitudes. Charles Enderby received a mention in episode 13 as having sent Benjamin Morell away with a flea in his ear when approached for a command. Charles and the Enderby company will crop up several times more in future episodes, but now it's time to focus on events in 1830. The Enderby brothers entrusted John Biscoe with the 150-ton brig Tula and the 50-ton cutter Lively. The ships left Gravesend in mid-July 1830 and made very slow progress southward, sometimes as little as three knots. They reached the Falklands in November and finding no seals, carried on to Sandwich Land, where they still found no seals. The ships crossed the Antarctic Circle on the 22nd of January 1831, reaching 69 degrees 3 minutes south on the 29th, at which Biscoe found his way blocked by pack ice and turned east. He may have sighted the continent between snow squalls on the 24th of February, but recent doubts about the accuracy of his chronometers give the event little value as a geographic milestone. Biscoe attempted to make a landing, but sea ice prevented any close approach. Biscoe made a more definite sighting several days later and named the area Enderby Land. On the 3rd of March, a five-day storm kicked off. The vessels were separated and the Tula was blown 120 miles northward. Sustained gales prevented the Tula from making its way south again until the 16th. Biscoe returned to the pack ice lying off Enderby land, but had to head north on the 3rd of April, as his ship and his crew were poked. They sailed for New Zealand for repairs and rest, but two deaths and multiple incapacitations due to scurvy while en route saw Biscoe alter course for Hobart. With only himself, three seamen and a boy still functioning, the Tula limped into Hobart on the 10th of May, where, just so the coincidences continued to stack up, James Waddell was on hand to help the barely crewed ship anchor up. The Lively fared even worse. 
After the five-day storm, the crew, already much hampered by scurvy, sailed for Hobart. Short-handed, they couldn't sail effectively. Missing Tasmania, they ended up in Port Phillip, arriving about a month before the Tula reached Hobart. Only three of the original ten crew made it. The surviving three were so weak that two crewmates who died below decks could not be retrieved and consigned to the deep for several days after reaching the bay. While the three recuperated and foraged on shore, the lively dragged her anchor and was lost for several weeks before the unlucky sailors found and refloated her. They sailed for Hobart, arriving on the 3rd of September, just as Biscoe was about to sail for a second season below the circle. The crew of the Tula spent over a month reviving the crew of the Lively and repairing the cutter to a state fit for another journey south. The vessel sealed in New Zealand waters to try to garner a cargo sufficient to cover the cost of the expedition, but seals were scarce. In January, they set a course for the Nimrod Islands. Reaching the latitude and longitude marking the Nimrods on the chart, Bisco found open water and couldn't find a bottom with the sounding line. Bisco had never learned of their efforts, but in the 20th century, John King Davis and Lars Christensen would also not find any evidence of the Nimrod Islands. Another brigadoon in the Southern Ocean. The ships crossed Cook's track, hoping to find land to the west-southwest of the South Shetlands. It was on that tack on the 15th of February that they sighted and named Queen Adelaide Island, managing to sail within two miles of its shore. The ships headed east, putting a boat ashore on Pitt Island but finding nothing of interest. On the 21st of February, they put ashore on what they were convinced was the mainland. Biscoe named it Graham Land after the First Lord of the Admiralty, Sir James Graham, and claimed it in the name of King William IV. It may be that he was actually on the shores of Anvers Island, but island or mainland, Biscoe charted almost 300 miles of coastline. With land definitively plotted in high southern latitudes on opposite sides of the globe, the idea of a great southern continent would subsequently regain precedence over the open polar ocean hypothesis fuelled by Waddell's experiences. Biscoe turned the ships for the Shetland Islands in hope of finding seals in a last-minute attempt to make the voyage pay. The expedition became the third to circumnavigate Antarctica and made significant geographical findings, but Biscoe was now focused on seals and heading home. Damage to the Tula's rudder forced a stop at the Falklands for repairs, where the luckless lively wrecked on the coast. Determined to spend another season sealing around Cape Horn, Biscoe's dispirited and exhausted crew deserted until only Biscoe, four seamen and three boys remained. This remnant crew sailed the Tula back to London, arriving in early 1833 with 30 sealskins and firm knowledge that a large continent lay behind the pack ice. Biscoe received the Royal Geographical Society's recently instituted gold medal award for his efforts, and the Enderbys attempted to interest him in another voyage of exploration, funded by the Admiralty on the recommendation of the Royal Geographic Society. Concerned for his own health, 
John Biscoe instead took on a less taxing command sailing to the West Indies in Australia. John Biscoe died at sea, aged 49, in 1843. Look at that. 14 episodes in, and we can finally state that the Antarctic continent exists. It's dizzying to think that a whole continent was only nominally understood to exist until 180 years ago. That's a big deal, geographically speaking, but it's easy to forget how difficult travelling and mapping the world was in previous eras. Take care and enjoy your coffee.